Okay, this morning we're picking up on our series on Galatians. Uh, but if you have your Bible with you or uh, equivalent electronic medium, uh, <laughs> please will you turn with me first to Matthew 20. And uh, we're going to read from verse 1. I'll just give those who'd like to follow a moment. Oh, and incidentally, just while you're looking that up, that comment about how print is getting smaller, mine's getting bigger. (laughs) (laughs) The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long, doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, And going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The central characters in this parable then are people who hire out their labour by the day and a landowner or master who hires in labourers by the day. Uh, It's called day labour. It still goes on in the building industry here. And it's repeated today, this scene, uh, with Palestinian day labourers who congregate at the Damascus Gate to Jerusalem. They tend not to go away and work in vineyards. It tends to be building and the like. But the, the scene still exists. Now, early in the parable, two questions arise. Why the landowner or the master himself, because he has a foreman, goes to the gate where the day workers congregate, no less than five times. Okay, there's no suggestion that he's an idiot. There's no suggestion that he doesn't know what he's doing. There's no suggestion that he doesn't know how many labourers his vineyard needs. And secondly, why are there still labourers waiting to be chosen so late in the day? And they're on their feet, and they have been all day in the heat. And in modern times, at the Damascus Gate, there's nobody there after about noon because it's just too hot. 
So to answer those questions, first, in the case of the master, it is that he has compassion on those who are seeking work. And in the case of the workers, it's that they want to work. They really want to work so much that they'll stand there in the heat of the day if that is what it takes. And they want to work because they have need. And work will supply their need. Now we read that there's, there's what amounts to a contract in place between the landowner and those he hired at the beginning of the day. And a, a rate for the day was agreed at one denarius. But we also read there is no contract with the other groups of workers. Uh, this is important to those who are hearing this because they recognise verbal contracts. The master said he would pay them whatever was right and they chose to trust him. Now, I've got to tell you in my business experience the one thing I never do would never do, would never advise you to do, is to agree to a, do a job if you don't know what you're going to get paid. Then the master does an odd thing, and it is an odd thing. Instead of paying off those who'd worked from the beginning of the day first, he does it the other way around. So that those who started first could witness what those who began work later in the day were paid. Which, as we know, it, it was the same wage. Now look, <laughs> if it were me, what I would have done is I would have paid off the people who started first, first. So they wouldn't have seen what everyone else got paid. Because frankly, you know, I would have suspected it would have caused trouble. Of course it would. So what, why? why? Why would he do that? Well, it's because he wanted them to witness the grace that he extended to those who'd only worked part of the day. You probably know this, it's a quote from G.W. Knight. <clears throat> when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that is a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that is a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person has not earned a wage, can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is unmerited favour. That is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. So in this parable, though the cost was borne entirely by the master, his choice to pay everyone the same rate offended the sense of fairness of those who had begun earliest. So the complaint of those who had begun work at the start of the day was actually a complaint being made by the justly paid, who could not tolerate the landowner's grace towards others they regarded as less deserving. So this was a complaint by the justly rewarded, who could not tolerate equality with those they considered had not earned it as they had. Now I've, I've struggled with a term for this um, but recognising the contradictions of the phrase, can we call that the actions of the master here unequal grace? Uh, Phil at the back there calls it outrageous grace. 
The issue is not equal work for equal pay, because this parable presents to us the overpaid and nobody is underpaid. So those who start work earliest considered the grace extended to those that didn't earn it as they felt they had, not so much amazing grace, but what Ken Bailey termed infuriating grace. Um, I'm going to uh, ask Peter to help me with this next bit. <clears throat> Peter, for a long, long time, if you bought a Rolls Royce or if you inquired of the factory what the power output was of the engine, what would the reply be? Adequate. Well, unfortunately, legislation means that they now have to come clean in some European countries as to what the power output is. But if you had a Rolls Royce and you inquired what power output it had, irrespective of when it was made, irrespective of the model, Rolls Royce would tell you it was adequate. Now, in this parable, for those who started work later in the day and were the recipients of the landowner's grace, their need was met. So just as the power, if you like, in a Rolls-Royce engine is always adequate, the master's grace was sufficient. I don't want to call it adequate. That sounds sufficient, yeah? Towards the end of the parable, the landowner points out that nobody has been treated unfairly and it is up to him to decide to whom he extends his grace and how he extends it. This is sovereign grace. So, <clears throat> a very quick overview of this parable demonstrates to us an equal grace, infuriating grace, sufficient grace and sovereign grace. And immediately after he gave this parable, Jesus set out for Jerusalem, knowing full well what would uh, await him there. And on that cross he would demonstrate sacrificial grace and saving grace. So, <clears throat> much to Nigel's relief, back to the letter of, to the Galatians. We're coming in part way through and we're picking up the series after a bit of a break and we have some visitors with us this morning. So a bit of a recap is in order. The book of Galatians was written as a letter to the Christian churches in Galatia, which was a Roman province in what is now Turkey. Galatia was the area where on his first missionary journey, Paul established the congregations in Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused with Syrian Antioch for the scholars amongst us, Iconium, Lystra and Derby, not to be confused with a city famous for the manufacture of locomotives for the train spotters among us. Paul visited these cities again on his second missionary journey and the date of the letter is somewhere between 48 to 52 AD, uh, they can't really uh, pin it down any closer than that. Now, the church in Galatia was young. Uh, uh, not young in the sense that it was full of young people, or that might have been the case. Young in the sense that it hadn't been going long. It was dynamic. There was lots going on there. And it was made up of Gentile converts who were the majority and who would not have been familiar with Jewish law, plus some Jewish converts who would have been very familiar with the Jewish law. Now earlier in the timeline, we read in Acts 14 that Paul and Barnabas encountered great opposition from some of the Jewish communities residing within the Galatian cities. 
Whilst the churches were being founded, they had encountered violence. They had been hounded. They had been beaten up. It was rough stuff. Now, Jesus anticipated that in, in Matthew 20, remember? Infuriating grace. And boy, were they furious. Following the foundation of the Galatian churches and after Paul had travelled on from them, a group variously called the Judaizers, or the Circumcision Party, began to teach error. And this error was gaining support in the churches in the region. So in response to this, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian churches, to all of them, to proclaim, clarify and uphold the true gospel that we are justified by grace, through faith, entirely without the works of the law. You with me? So to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. <clears throat> Knowing some of our visitors who would be with us this morning, I've actually warned them that I'm going to stand here and shout, you foolish Galatians, at them. Um, because I, you know, I don't want to lose their friendship. <clears throat> you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because... You believe what you heard. Not pulling his punches, is he? Characteristic of Galatians. Okay. <clears throat> He's using rhetorical questions. Uh, a rhetorical question is one to which the answer should be known by the person you are questioning and so obvious that no answer is required. Ouch. Because one of them is are you so foolish? <laughs> you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. <sighs> well, who, who had bewitched them? Just to be clear, this isn't an issue of witchcraft. This is about who influenced you. You take verse 1 back to the Greek and you find Paul is taking them to task for their failure to understand, their failure to perceive or think for their spiritual dullness. Uh, I paraphrase it like this, you may choose your own. Didn't you hear a word I said? Use your head. Not authorised by anybody, these teaching, those, those teachers of fundamental error had turned up presumably uninvited, taking it upon themselves to teach without the support, authority or backing of any part of the early church. Now that alone should have set off the New Testament equivalent of alarm bells. Goat bells, perhaps. <laughs> now, even today, folks, we've got to be cautious and even wary of individuals who take it upon themselves to teach, take it upon themselves to teach, without the support, authority or backing of any reputable and recognised Christian organisation. Mm. 
or who try to teach within the church without the recognition of the church. There are some complete dingbats out there, let's be honest. <laughs> if you want to see some appalling stuff, go on the internet. But, um, you know, don't believe it. I, I, I beg of you. Uh, watch out for people with agendas. Watch out for folk whose starting point is the opposition to somebody else. Check the word of God. Check with Nigel. Or as Paul would put it, use your head. Judaizers, they might have been sincere people. They might have been nice people. Um, they were certainly persuasive people. But their error, unchecked, would have not just practical but eternal consequences to those that accepted it. Now, although the letter is intended for and would have been read out to the entire congregations of the Galatian churches, I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall, frankly, when that happened. Okay. Those who received the letter first, those whose job it was to have read it out to the, to the church, well, they were the elders in the Galatian churches. Now, how would you feel getting a letter like that? I'm not going to ask David because I always pick on him. Okay, Nigel. <laughs> okay. These are people Paul knows. He's sending this to the elders and he knows them. Okay, they're not strangers. He knows them and he knows them well. They're dear to him. He will have eaten his home, in their homes, patted their children. It's highly likely that at least some of these folk, he himself led to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. These are people he himself appointed as elders. Okay, he's been blunt. He's being a bit shouty, let's be honest. But the danger is great. Now, uh, when uh, Matthew was very little, um, my son, I can recall that he, he went to cross the road when something was coming. Uh, and I yelled at him. I yelled at him. Uh, and he drew back from the road. He was very upset with me for yelling. Okay, and he was a bit disorientated by the sudden change in Daddy's demeanour. Okay, but I don't regret yelling at him. The danger was great, and the shout saved him. So he's being very blunt, but the danger is great. He's being very blunt, but there are pre-existing relationships to support him being so. They weren't strangers. He's being very blunt, but, and this is key, they know he loves them. They've seen what he went through for them, the beatings up. And he, they've seen all that. They also know that he's not like that all the time. They don't have a relationship composed solely of him shouting and them listening. Sure, he's being blunt, but they recognise his authority over them. Okay, he's being blunt, but because of their joint history... They're receptive to what he has to say. Unless these preconditions are met, we have to recognise that being so blunt is unlikely to be fruitful. Um, I think it was, it was Blinda made the comment that, you know, these days if you stand at the, the cross in Buckley and you 
harangue people, uh, the euphemism is preach, but harangue people as they go past. Uh, there is no relationship to bear that, you know. Um, it, it, it is incredibly unlikely that if somebody you don't know walks past and you yell at them very loud that they're going to go to hell and burn in all eternity. Though you're right, there's no relation to, relationship to support that being received. So, even if we're right, Galatians 3 verse 1 does not give us general license to unload on others we believe to be wrong. Has anyone here ever been to their face or in writing called a foolish Galatian? <laughs> it, it happened uh, partway through when I was preparing this that I, I needed a an address for someone. I hadn't sent anything to for a long, long time. I went through some old e emails and there was one from this person calling me a foolish Galatian. And I thought, well, I wonder what I said. And my reply said, basically, I live in Flintshire. <laughs> I travelled to Istanbul once on business. That does not make me a Galatian. We have to understand, uh, this, this, this piece of scripture is so important to us, we have to understand that God is telling us to use our head. Okay? To listen to what he has to say to us and use our head. And if you want to find one thing that is wearying to a Christian leader in any environment, it's that people keep making mistakes that they should have known better. It's that people keep making mistakes without checking. Is it all right if? It's that people keep making the same mistakes. And that is wearying to any Christian leader. And it is incumbent on us. It is beholden on us. It is our job <coughs> to use our heads. That does mean to say exclude your leader entirely. Don't be wrong. You know, at the other extreme. But you get where I'm coming from, don't you? A nod would be nice. Yeah, thank you. Now, Galatians isn't the only place we read of this issue in the Bible. Acts 15, there's Paul confronting the false teachers face to face. Um, we read that he had, quote, sharp dispute and debate with them. Well, does that not sound like the biblical equivalent of full and frank exchange of views? He insisted that the issue be referred back to the apostles in Jerusalem for formal adjudication. He did not let the matter lie. Now, there are some things that we cannot let lie. There are many things we can just let go, but there are some we cannot let lie. We need to use our head. Now, the adjudication was subsequently reached at what we now call the Jerusalem Council. We learn from Acts that the Jerusalem Council, who were Jews themselves, remember, agreed with Paul, himself a Jew, and counted the Judaizers as in error. And I think that uh, the parable that we read in Matthew, it saw this coming, didn't it? Unequal grace, infuriating grace, sufficient grace, sovereign grace, added to which was sacrificial grace and saving grace. I... I 
I admire and respect Paul. I suspect he was a bit of a handful, frankly. But he wasn't somebody who fired off a letter if he wasn't prepared to say it face to face. Okay? He was, he was dead straight. And dead straight people uh, kind of have their pros and cons in my view. But one of the pros is you always know where they stand. And they're always clear. The thing with Paul is he didn't say something different in writing and then to, to what he actually did. He was entirely consistent and compromising and immovable all the way through. Now, I would suggest that in these days, email is the most dangerous place for all of this. Uh, in my personal and professional life, I've from time to time received email with content the sender would never dream of saying to my face. Even with the people we know who are dear to us and with whom we have a shared history, even if we think the other party is wrong, even if we think they're a foolish Galatian, we don't have cover for firing off the global thermonuclear email. Okay? The one that will destroy everything when it lands. Now, if you, look, if you, if you had a Jewish background... I think it's difficult for us to imagine just how tremendously hard it must be at that time to look forward to the new covenant, which is new and strange and unnerving, without a wistful backward glance at the old, which was familiar and maybe more comfortable. Now, it's right and honouring to God that we, his children, celebrate his hand on our lives, isn't it? The things he's done and the way he's done them. It's right that we speak of, of his past victories in our life and share our war stories. But balancing that, not uh, pushing it aside, but balancing it. Philippians 3, Paul writes, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. We've got to learn from our history, but we can't live in it. Okay, If anyone uses the UCB notes, in fact you'll have seen that this morning, it, it, it Knowing I had already prepared it, it kind of, ooh, dear. Okay. You can't live in your history because all you'll do is relive your history. You've got to move on. And Paul is very clear that our basic stance should be one of straining forward, pressing on. It helps me to remember that at some point today will be one of the good old days. It was a bit existential. Did you get that? Yeah. So to verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now for the first time in, in, in a long, long time, years, um, more than I care to count actually, I recently found myself sharing a meal with a fellow Christian who, who as the conversation <coughs> progressed, I realised didn't believe in and had not experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've got to be honest, I've kind of taken it as read for many years. That I'm 
totally unashamed of being a charismatic Christian, which is to say I have been baptised by the Holy Spirit. And for me personally, this was separated in time from when I first became a Christian. Now, I have checked thoroughly that the stance that I have on the baptism of the Holy Spirit is on, is on good scriptural grounds. But rather than enter into a theological debate, rather than say, well, it says in, I felt the best approach was to outline my personal experience. Why? Well, I was there. <laughs> we are all called... Um, we're all called to, to have something we call our testimony, don't we? Why is it called our, our testimony? Uh, Peter uh, was talking about this the other week to me. He said, he's a former policeman. Okay? It's our testimony if we are prepared to stand in a court of law and testify to it that it is the truth. And we are a reliable witness if our character can be cross-examined and found to stand up. We can testify to the truth of what God has done in our life. Why? Well, we were there. We know what God did. We know what we saw. We know what happened to us. You were there, Paul writes to the Galatian church, and you know what happened. And if you just think about it, you'll remember that you received the Spirit simply by believing. And this fact alone completely undermines the need for any add-ons. Um, Hawkins paraphrase again here. Think how dumb it is to try and impose conditions upon what you've already freely received. So having pointed out that the Judaizers' view contradicts their own, which is to say the Galatian church's experience, Paul still goes to the trouble of comprehensively outlining from verse 6 in this chapter the theological position with respect to the law. So it isn't experience with no substance. You should know it's wrong, he's saying, both because it contradicts your experience and because it is inconsistent with the word of God. And this is our stance towards our experience of God too, isn't it? We know him and love him and experience him, but our experience and our love and our knowledge is anchored in his word. Speaking personally, I think maybe I've missed a trick or two in the last few years when it comes to talking to people about God by just not telling them, you know, what he's done in my life, by just not telling them and demonstrating his hand in my life. Okay. For me personally, I have a, a, a challenge on, really, which is if I'm talking to someone who doesn't know the Lord, don't go for principles first, tell them what happened to me. Does that make sense? If you're listening to this on the internet, they all nodded and said yes. <laughs> so to verse 3. Are you so foolish? After the beginning, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Oh, come on, sometimes we do. 
We probably don't realise we are, but sometimes we do. Um, we might uh, link our attendance to certain meetings subconsciously with our spirituality. Okay, You can't attain uh, grace by effort. Now in our house group, in the context of there is no such thing as, someone came up with the phrase gospel plus. There is no such thing as gospel plus. It doesn't come in a range of models and colours and you can't add to it and you can't take away from it. Um, in a fit of whimsy, I created a whole car range based on the gospel. Um, I think what got me going was there's such a thing as a golf plus, which is close to gospel plus, isn't it? I had a gospel estate, which is for Christians who like to carry baggage. <laughs> I had a gospel turbo for particularly fast-moving Christians. Okay. I had the hybrid gospel for Christians who like more than one source of power. There's one gospel for all. It's called the gospel. And I can't help thinking the clue is in the use of the word the. <laughs> There is within the Christian community an expectation of godly lifestyle for those who live under grace. Indeed, some churches have taken these expectations, we've turned them into a huge list of implicit or explicit expectations and sometimes published rules. So, <clears throat> Rachel isn't here, is she? She's gone out with the kids. Good. So Valentine's Day has just passed. Let's say for argument's sake that Phil went to the trouble of buying a huge bouquet of flowers for his lovely wife. As an attentive husband, he knew which were her favourite kind and the colour combination that would most please her. And he took great care not to buy the flowers he knew made her sneeze or whose scent she didn't appreciate. And let us say that he went to Thornton's and he bought a heart-shaped box of her favourite chocolates. And let's say that as a surprise, he turned up with the flowers and chocolates at a place he knew she would be. Maybe this was a, a friend's house. And he did this because he knows she loves surprises. So he rings the doorbell and Rachel is called for and she comes to the door. And he presents to her the flowers and the chocolates. And she's a little bit overcome. She says, thank you so much, darling, but whatever made you think of doing this? And he says, you're my wife and it's therefore my duty and responsibility. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so we draw a veil over the violence and recriminations that may uh, follow. <coughs> if, however, Philid replied, and truthfully, because I love you so much and your love has changed me forever. I think we can agree that the outcome would have been different. We will draw a veil over the precise outcome, obviously. <laughs> our, work with, our walk with God is not based on a relationship of duty and obligation and rule following, but rather one of love. And it is this relationship of love that drives our conduct. We do not work our way into anything. We are justified by grace through faith in the one who first loved us. 
Now, I've heard Nigel say uh, a couple of times that one of the primary things he tries to do as a, as a pastor is to teach us, his flock, to love God. Uh, I've, I've been around about a year. I've never heard him once try and teach us on regular Bible study. Regular Bible study is good and to be encouraged, but Nigel teaches us to love God because he knows that if we do that, and we do that with all our hearts, all the other things to do with conduct and lifestyle will be surrendered to God and they will follow on. Yes. Okay? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and then issues that are outstanding, uh, you know, they will come into line. They will get sorted out. Okay. I think just before I get into verse 4, <clears throat> uh, my experience uh, it, over the years has taught me that sometimes when you're counselling people, the question arises in your mind, look, does this person actually know God? Uh, you know, are, are, are they a Christian? Um, because their lifestyle or their conduct is so out of phase with the cry of God's heart of love for them. Um, and sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I know, I've known people come for counselling, you know, and their problem's this relationship or that money problem, but actually what they don't understand is they've got to love God and commit their life to him. And that is the beginning of starting to solve it out. It's not the end of the problem, it's the beginning of the start. Okay? What Churchill called the end of the beginning. Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing. This, uh, this really looks back on the persecution of the new believers in Galatia. As Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps at the end of the first missionary journey, we read in Acts 14, a warning to the Galatians that they would suffer as Christians. And most commentators agree that it does appear that persecution followed. And to their credit, they had stood their ground. There's, you know, people who get a letter like this had stood their ground under persecution. I'm going to do a Steve Hawkins paraphrase again. I can't believe, said Paul, that you stood up to persecution which could not shift you only for you to shift yourselves. <laughs> Was your earlier stand a complete waste of time? I've observed over the years with awe, tremendous admiration, fellow Christians hold on to the promises of God in, in really tough times, in times actually of, of utter tragedy. And I've been humbled by the faith that I've observed in them as they've dealt with their circumstances in a godly and a steadfast manner. Yeah. And I've observed some of the same people give away in easier times what Satan could not snatch from them in hard ones. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a matter of genuine distress to me to see Christian friends' love for God, to see their heat, their ardour, their passion for Jesus, not stolen, but slowly and quietly surrendered. Yes. So, if things are going well, God's heart cry to us is, 
Remember your first love. And if things are tough, God reassures us, as he did uh, to the Galatians, that it isn't for nothing. And that he will work it out for our good. In either case, God promises that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Or as one commentator put it, God will always match us in intimacy. I'm going to say that again. If things are going well, God's cry is, remember your first love. If things are tough, God's reassurance is that it isn't for nothing and he will work it out for our good. And in either case, God will match us in intimacy. So to verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Okay, we'll just check that everyone's awake. Hands up if you think it's because you observe the law. Or because you believe what you heard. I'm sorry, there's no middle ground. If, you, if it's the latter one, you've got to put your hand up. There isn't an undecided here. It's one or the other, isn't it? For background, Acts 14 uh, says this about events at uh, Iconium. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Now, it's back to my earlier point about a rhetorical question. They, they know the answer to that question because they were there and they saw it happen. Miraculous signs and wonders. And I think there is just a, a little point to, 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 to make there. It's not in my notes. It's just occurred to me. How is it that we who have seen God's hand move miraculously, that we who have seen you know, healings and, and, and wonderful answers to prayer can still be prone to drifting off? It's a matter of believing. Yeah? Remember our first love. I, I want to uh, just give a word of testimony on this. I, 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 with apologies to my house group who, who know all this. Um, I, I was uh, baptised in the Holy Spirit when I was a, a university student, having been a, a Christian for uh, uh, quite a number of years from my early teens. Um, I went to a, a Christian boarding school. Uh, my parents were under the impression that Christian meant you helped old ladies across the road and didn't smash up bus shelters. They honestly had no idea what it meant. So they had no idea what they were doing to me. <laughs> I found the Lord there. And it was a very unusual school because about half of, of the school population were Christians. And some of them were missionaries' kids, and uh, some of them lived abroad, and, and so on. So if you were running, for example, a thing called the Borders Christian Fellowship, which A6 former did every year, you were actually running a fellowship of 200 kids. This was an unusual place. I got to university with a, a brethren background, and if I felt like getting a bit wild, I'd visit the Baptist church. <laughs> <clears throat> and... Uh, as, as you do in such circumstances I met lots of other Christians got to know them really enjoyed uh, the kind of fellowship you can have when you're living on top of each other 
Uh, and there was one particular guy who, who was a Pentecostal. Now, I knew about Pentecostals from my, my brethren and, and uh, Baptist background, which was, you know, that they were completely out to lunch. <laughs> the, li the lift did not go to the top floor. Um, and they were to be avoided at all costs, these wild radicals. Uh, he was a lovely guy. And we used to debate over open Bibles and a packet of hobnobs. Uh, <laughs> so the, the whole issue of, of being filled by the Spirit. Uh, and I, I personally, I, I was torn. On, on the one hand, I loved God, I really did, and I wanted everything he had for me. On the other hand, I didn't want to do anything wrong. And we reached a point in the theological debate where I was, frankly, I was struggling uh, to, to, uh, to maintain my case. And he, he issued the, uh, the coup de grace where he basically said, look, why don't you ask God to baptize you in the Holy Spirit? And then you'll find out whether I'm talking the truth or whether this is rubbish. Uh, and that was like a sort of a thorn, really in my foot and it festered <laughs> for some time. I just couldn't. <laughs> so one night I, I, I got down uh, uh, on my knees. I used to pray on my knees before I climbed into bed. Not because I'm spiritual, but because I nodded off if I tried to do it in bed. And uh, <clears throat> it was sort of, a, I, I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but it was an elephant in the room prayer. I'm praying all the stuff that I should pray, knowing full well that there's this great big thing over there. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and I, I, I wrapped the whole thing in every possible caveat and subclause, you know. I'm going to pray for this, Lord, but it's okay if you don't. I'll still love you. And, uh, you know, I won't be any less of a, a child of God. And, and uh, so having given the Lord every possible get-out clause, uh, 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 I, I waited. Uh, nothing. Very quiet. And I waited some more. And as you're probably aware, perceived waiting time is about three times as much as actual waiting time. But I promise you, I waited a long time. And then I went to say, that's all right, Lord, I still love you. And it came out in tongues. <laughs> <clears throat> and I knew what they were. I was just a bit surprised. That <laughs> uh, and for me, that was a damn breaking. Oh, it's all true. It's all true. All of these gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's true. Ah! <laughs> so, um, as you can imagine, I was a bit excited and uh, uh, shared this with, with a number of other Christian friends. And a day or two days later, someone knocks on my, my door and, and he says, um, uh, this, this, this guy, he's actually the uh, president of the Students' Union thing. Uh, you know, he is a Christian, although he's not really going on with the Lord. He's heard you've been baptised with the Holy Spirit and he wants you to come and pray for his healing because he's broken his ankle. <laughs> Checks. No door. <laughs> so, um, almost for lack of alternative, uh, I went, to, uh, went down to see this guy. He was there, he had his, his ankle all in one of these metal brace things and and padding and what have you and and I arrived and I actually looked at him I said well I know you want me to heal you know pray for you uh, uh, but I don't know what to do 
He said, well, just put your hand on, on the ankle and, and pray. Uh, so uh, I said, well, won't that hurt you? <laughs> no, no, just be, just be gentle. So I put my hand in his ankle and, and I prayed and I felt all his bones knit under my hand as I prayed. And, and you know, I got to the Amen awful fast because it was spooking me. Um, see, I, I can't, my testimony is not that God moved in healing because uh, I was following a game plan or a rule book. My testimony isn't that at all because, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. And from a theological point of view, I had to backfill after it happened. Um, and it's right that we do, by the way. It was a sovereign act of grace, wasn't it? So the praise and glory belongs to God. Um, or as a friend of mine put it, he said, if you have a lovely drink of water, you tend not to thank God for the plumbing that delivered it. <laughs> God's word says, and my testimony is, that God gives us his spirit and works miracles among us because we believe what we have heard. Now, I don't know if anyone here isn't a Christian, but we would just love to tell you more about God's grace. Um, and, it, you know, if you want to know more, then come on down at the, at the end. Perhaps talk to Nigel or David or uh, Rupert. Um, but those, those questions, as I hope we sort of got our head around, they, they still have resonance, don't they? Not because we are uh, currently mired in error, um, but to help us know and understand God better. Yeah? I've got to tell you uh, another word of testimony just before I finish, uh, really. Uh, some of the most important lessons that I've learned as a Christian, things that have changed my life or the direction of my life, have been given to me in a very straight way. And my strong advice is that if, if you have folk who are faithful enough to be straight with you, that you thank them and you love them and you appreciate them, and if you think, you know, who are they to talk to me like that? My advice is to, to try and do what I do, which is get over myself. Try and hear what God is saying. Okay. We're going to stop for coffee in a second, but can I just pray before we, yeah? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, today and evermore.